0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network.
1: Today on Government Matters, the National Science Foundation was created by Congress in 1950. It's the only federal agency that supports research across all fields of science and engineering and STEM education at all levels. I'll talk to the NSF's leader about the state of scientific research and what the future holds. Then, at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, some of the country's hardest-hit communities lacked access to testing, treatment, and vaccines. We talk about how a team from the Health Resources and Services Administration was able to turn that around. Government Matters starts right now.
0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gergis. The NSF has created a new directorate called TIP, Technology, Innovation and Partnerships. Here to talk about that and NSF's broader scientific and engineering mission is the director of the National Science Foundation, Sethuraman Panchanathan. Mr. Director, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Thank
2: you. Thank you very much for having me.
1: So start by giving us um, an idea historically of some of the projects that NSF has funded that has directly impacted the public.
2: So let's take two concrete examples. This morning when you got up, you must have been wondering about the weather today. And if you look at all the science that went behind the weather prediction, the modeling, and all the computational efforts that go into it, all of this has fundamental basis in terms of NSF-funded projects over the last several decades and we are perfecting it every time through solid science, and therefore solid technological uh, advancements that we make. The second example, if you drove into work today, you probably used the GPS. And Again, all the technologies that contributed towards you navigating through the traffic and the AI algorithms that helped you navigate in an automated way, all of that was made possible because of the tremendous work that NSF has invested in, and the great ideas that came through those investments, that led to these outcomes.
1: Well, NSF was created by Congress in 1950. What led to that? What was the motivation for that creation?
2: A great question. So in 1945, when we came out of World War II, a great scientist, and I would call him a fantastic leader and a visionary leader, uh, Dr. Vannevar Bush at MIT, proposed to the president saying that, now that we've come out of the war and we have had some amazing innovations like radar and so on, Can we have science and technology investments such that we will be able to continue with these innovations that benefits humanity, society, and the economy? And so that led to the creation of NSF in 1950 through an act of Congress, and with explicit mission of promoting the progress of science, of course, science, engineering, and technology, for the benefit of humanity, advancing health, prosperity, welfare, and also securing national defense.
1: Well, make that your, your budget is around $9 billion. Yeah. Make the case for us that it should be the government spending that money and investing in science as opposed to private industries, because they benefit, they, they make a profit in the end. When they, when they have an innovation, they make a lot of money. Yeah.
2: So we want to make sure that industry thrives and prospers. But when you look at to the earlier question that you asked, when you look at early stage technologies, investments in fundamental research that makes things possible, Essentially, government de-risks the in- investments basically, to make sure that scientific ideas and scientific technology, emerging technologies are invested into the point where venture capital and industry is able to either take those technologies and ideas and then quickly, rapidly prototype them and productize them, and, and make it possible to have great services and great technologies that come out that we use every day. So the government has a role in terms of de-risking, investing in fundamental research activities, and NSF has contributed immensely through those investments, turning into fantastic ideas, and let's not forget the talent. The talent that is trained, that is what goes to industry, the talent, the great you know, idea thought leaders that go to industry, and then create not only new products and technologies in the industries that they are, but also create new industries of the future.
1: You mentioned the word risk because your mission includes um, this. It says, quote, "Um, to go after high risk, potentially transformative research projects that will generate pathbreaking discoveries and new technologies. Given that it's high risk, how do you decide if it's actually worth it to, to go after it and fund it?
2: That's, again, an excellent question. So NSF has what we call the gold standard merit review process. These are colleagues and peers who I have had my own share of proposals being evaluated by such people and teams, the panels, and they look for those nuggets of fantastic ideas that are out there that are proposed by various faculty and researchers across the nation. And it is a very rigorous selection process in terms of those scientific ideas that merit investment. And so there is a it is not just we randomly invest in high-risk ideas but they go through a rigorous vetting process before they're invested in. and Yes, they are high-risk, and some of them produce unbelievable outcomes. Some of them may seem like they may not have produced a direct outcome, but has contributed to much larger outcomes, like even in the case of the two examples that I talked about. There might have been ideas that we invested in that might not have led to an outcome right away, but over the decades that has shaped itself into amazing possibilities in the future.
1: You know, on the flip side though, there is the criticism that that process is too rigorous and that there isn't, you know, the NSF doesn't embrace those radically new ideas and it it sticks to the conventional stuff. What's your reaction to that?
2: In fact, it's quite the opposite. In fact, NSF invests in high risk ideas and you referenced it in the previous question exactly that way. In fact, that's what NSF is unique as an agency because our mission in contrast to you know a specific application area or a specific targeted focus that we that most mission agencies might have our mission is to promote fundamental science and technology ideas and therefore we always are looking for high risk high reward ideas and our panels and the people that are contributing to the review process themselves are proposers of high risk ideas and therefore they're very aware that not all ideas will necessarily see the immediate benefits right away, but that they are important for the advancement of science.
1: You know, one of your priority areas at the NSF is artificial intelligence. Um, There's a lot going on in that field across the government and in industry. What are you um, adding to the AI arena?
2: So if you look at AI today, it is because of sustained investments that NSF has made over the last several decades. So let's be very clear about that this goes back to addressing some of the previous questions too, is sustained investments over the last five or six decades in computing. and Even in AI, in the forms that it took through several versions of AI and here we are today, and so AI today is made possible by the investments of NSF, and NSF is one of the major investors. In fact, 80 percent of non-defense research in computer science is invested in by NSF. So that's the first point that I want to make. The second point is if you look at AI of today, there are still many challenges. We all understand that bias, ethics, privacy, security, and a whole host of problems are in AI today and we are trying to address them. And So for example, you as a science and technology policy expert will attest to this that we need to bring social behavioral economic sciences, humanities, and other inspirations as we design these technologies so that we can serve better, we can address these problems early, and therefore produce better solutions. So today, we are finding that with AI, we are looking at not only pure AI advancements into the future, but also how AI relates to various applications, agriculture, medicine, weather, and a whole host of applications which determine how AI can be better applied, and how AI innovations can be steered because of the applications, and more importantly, bring the social behavioral component.
1: All right. We'll take a quick pause here, and then we'll come back and continue. Coming up next on Government Matters, we'll continue our conversation with Sethuraman Panchanathan, director of the NSF. Stay with us. We're back with Sethuraman Panchanathan, the director of the National Science Foundation. Um, Director, let's talk about this new directorate. It's called the uh, Technology Innovation and Partnership. Why was it created and what's it expected to do?
2: So if you look at the two major things that NSF does really well is promotion of great ideas, advancement of great ideas, and also advancement of talent. These are two things that NSF does really well all across the nation. So this is a moment of intense global competition. So when these ideas that are amazing ideas that comes out of NSF projects, we need to make sure that we translate those ideas rapidly into technological solutions, prototypes, things of that nature in partnership with industry, and the economic development ecosystems. That's one thing that we want to do really well in our nation, so that we can be in the vanguard of competitiveness. And More importantly, that we want to make sure that those ideas are really benefiting humanity, society, and the economy really well. So this is the principal objective. How do you unleash innovations anywhere across the nation, and how do you make opportunities possible everywhere across the nation? How do we accelerate that? How do you strengthen at speed and scale? This is the reason why we launched a cross-cutting directorate of technology innovation and
1: partnerships. And how effective has that shift been, kind of away from the pure science and that foundational research, towards more tech and innovation?
2: I wouldn't call it a shift at all. Mm -hmm. I would call it an enrichment. So what we are trying to do here, and I I described this NSF mission in the form of a DNA example. If you look at what NSF does really well, think of a DNA. One strand of the DNA is what I call curiosity-driven, discovery-based exploratory research. And everybody knows NSF, that it is a place where it does it really, really well. The other strand, which is called use-inspired solutions-focused innovations, is also something that NSF has been really good at. There are many examples, we can talk about that later. But what is important is to understand that this is like a DNA, highly intertwined. Explorations make possible innovations and innovations in turn inspire more explorations. This symbiotic relationship is what NSF is. So in fact, this focus of TIP is going to leverage more, but also energize even more exploration activities. So it is enrichment, not taking away from one to the other. I just want to be very clear about that expansion and scaling.
1: You've talked about STEM education in this country a lot. Um, I want to ask you what your efforts have been specifically around increasing participation by underrepresented groups this
2: is a very very important focus at nsf right now because we believe talent and ideas are democratized they're all across our nation in all the 50 states all across the broad socioeconomic demographic and the rich diversity of our nation so we're investing heavily in specific programs let me give you an example in terms of gender diversity we launched a program for you know ap courses in computer science principles right and we m- made sure that the broad socioeconomic demographic of students get excited by computing and computer science as an example as a pathway into stem and now i'm happy to report just in terms of data from 2017 to 2020 we have from 17000 students women taking computer science courses ap courses to 40000 so we are rapidly scaling whether it is investments in historically black colleges and universities, Hispanic-serving institutions, tribal colleges, universities, community colleges. We are making sure that talent everywhere is inspired.
1: Are you optimistic about the state of STEM education in the United States, specifically when it comes to competing with the rest of the world?
2: Yeah. I'm fundamentally an optimist. Therefore, I am optimistic, but with the understanding that a lot more needs to be done, a lot faster with intentionality and intensity. And that's what I'm trying to make sure that NSF is focused on. Is yes, we are doing okay, but we need to do a lot more, a lot faster, a lot better. And that's why we're focusing on programs. But by focusing on programs, we are listening to the community. What is working, what is not working, how we might configure NSF to serve better. Uh,
1: regarding, you know, NSF's vision is to lead, right? So lead the world in science and engineering, research and development. But really, where are we? When you look at China, when you look at other countries in that arena, where are we right now?
2: So you look at the, uh, every two years, the National Science Board produces a Science and Engineering Indicators report. If you look at the the latest report, you will find that our investments overall um, by by the United States is 29% of the overall R&D investments. Yes, China is catching up. And so clearly, we need a lot more work to be done here in terms of increasing the investments that we make in fundamental research. Because it's very clear that it has been shown that all the investments that we make produces unbelievable outcomes through people and ideas and as i said technologies for economic and societal prosperity so that's very clear but we also need to remember that the entire world is looking to united states as a model everybody wants to see how they can have their nsfs so that it might spur the kind of innovation but what is exciting about the united states is it's a draw It's a place because of the democracy and the freedom that we have here, that also brings with it the entrepreneurial mindset, the innovative mindset. And that makes people want to come here and want to be part of this innovative ecosystem. At the same time, if we inspire more domestic talent, which is what I'm focused on, then we get people, domestic talent excited at the same time. So both the domestic talent and the global talent in the additive form can really inspire amazing innovations that keeps us in the vanguard of competitiveness against all the countries and competitors. But we also want to collaborate with them. And so we collaborate with like-minded partners, partners who share our values of openness, transparency, reciprocity, research integrity, respect for intellectual property. All of these are important tenets or values. If countries share those values, we collaborate with them.
1: Well, Mr. Director, there is so much more to talk to you about, but we're out of time. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me Mimi, I really
1: appreciate that. Coming up, a team at the Health Resources and Services Administration put an entire program together in two weeks to address COVID-19 healthcare inequities. We're talking with the woman who led that effort. We'll be right back. As COVID-19 spread throughout the country, the urban poor and rural agricultural workers couldn't get access to tests, vaccines, and life-saving drugs. A team from the Office of Quality Improvement at the Health Resources and Services Administration delivered over 20 million vaccine doses to communities in need. Sumanaer Nair is the director of that office and led the effort. She's also a finalist for a Service to America medal.
3: Suma, welcome to the program. Great. Good morning. Thank you, Mimi. So
1: what was the problem? Why were those communities being left out as the vaccines and other supplies were being rolled out around the country?
3: Yeah, I think early on the efforts were to get the vaccine out as quickly as possible to as many communities as possible. And um, large scale mass vaccination events that were really helpful, but missed a segment of the population who perhaps couldn't reach those. Or we're not comfortable engaging them. And so we saw early on that um, even in the vaccination effort for healthcare providers, health center providers were not being uh, reached equitably and quickly. And they were, in fact, the frontline defense for many of our patients across communities. And so it was wonderful to have this direct allocation program that could get directly to our healthcare providers, protect them, and enable them to then work. Uh, more slowly with the communities they had built trust with, um, set up events that supported access, not through an online portal, but in language, culturally competent to get out to their patients, uh, whether it was through community events, of which they did 10,000 or more, uh, into homes uh, and bring people into their clinic to support them with getting the vaccine.
1: Sumo, why would it be your office that would be responsible for getting help to those populations? How does that fit?
3: yeah we are part of the health resources and services administration and our day job if you will is to provide grants to provide support services for uh, robust culturally competent high quality primary care Uh, and so when we knew that we needed to distribute the vaccine i think the administration came directly to us because of our trusted relationship with our 1400 community health centers all across the country so that they could leverage our knowledge of the systems, the health centers, the care teams, so that we could quickly get the vaccine out to patients and communities across the country. Well, this project uh, is obviously a huge task. Where did you start? um we started with what we knew already um we we had a good amount of data over our years of working with health centers to understand the complexity of the patients the communities that they served and so we knew where to start in terms of targeting early on our first health centers with that focus on equity um individuals with limited English proficiencies individuals experiencing homelessness agricultural farm workers um residents of public housing so we used the data We also had systems through being a grant making agency and working with our health centers that we had contact information, ways to communicate. Obviously our our routine communication with health centers would be monthly or quarterly. We were communicating with them on a daily and weekly basis throughout the COVID pandemic. And so we had to really ratchet up uh, our IT systems, our communication vehicles, and the way we engage with our customers to have the bi-directional information changing. The nature of the pandemic was so dynamic that through each phase of the vaccine program. As we had more products online, we extended to different age groups. We had to make sure the information was getting out to our health centers and patients.
1: And in the beginning uh, of this uh, crisis, there weren't enough vaccines. So how did you prioritize where those doses would go within those communities of need?
3: Absolutely, I think we leveraged the information that we had about our health center patients and communities and focused on those who we knew were least likely to be able to engage in mass vaccination events and clinics
1: and you also delivered about 50,000 antiviral doses. Talk about that process.
3: Absolutely. You know, it was wonderful to have another layer of strategy to mitigate um, severe COVID mortality and morbidity. So when the oral antivirals came online, we were so happy to get an allocation of those to distribute to community health centers again. So we know the pandemic was not equitable in its toll across communities across the country. So the communities that we serve were disproportionately impacted and we were able to offer these therapeutics so they could prevent them from getting really sick and going to the hospital uh, and spreading uh, COVID further. And so it was really important to have that. Um, and then part of that, I think what we learned about therapeutics is the need to educate patients on the availability, what are the different considerations, and health center providers have that relationship with their patients that they were able to quickly uh, implement the test to treat strategies. So we had testing kits available, tests on hand, to and if someone tested positive, they could quickly turn around and get the therapeutic that they needed within that three to five uh, day window to support their recovery.
1: All right, Suma, thank you so much. Appreciate your work on on this. Nice to be with you. Thanks so much. Nice to talk to you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.
0: Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems.
1: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
4: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, Uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course.
1: Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen Five because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service.
4: It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen Four, that are called high-throughput satellites, and these are satellite services that took satellite